Yo, friends, it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And kind of a, a special edition of the show today because the program landed on April 1st and also landed during our semi-annual fundraising event here at the station, our Spring Pledge Drive. So an occasion that was both kind of unserious and serious at one and the same time. So um, I sought out a guest who embodied both of those principles, both levity and gravity. And I got someone who I think exemplifies that duality perfectly, John Hodgman. John, uh, as you probably know, is one of the world's foremost fake experts on everything. He's the author of three books of so-called world knowledge. He's also the resident expert on The Daily Show. He's an actor. He's appeared in a number of TV shows like Bored to Death and Flight of the Concords on HBO. He's a frequent contributor to the Bullseye radio show, formerly known as The Sound of Young America, created by Jesse Thorne. And John also adjudicates various disputes on the Judge John Hodgman podcast, created by the very same Jesse Thorne. Oh, yeah, and John was also the PC on those I'm a Mac, I'm a PC commercials that Apple used to run. So uh, a very well-rounded fellow indeed. And you're going to hear some of that range in the interview today, which started out kind of jokey and then got uh, around to some more serious matters like the nature of knowledge and authority and truth and falsehood in the digital age and the rather surprising, at least to me, origin of John's professorial persona. So here's my interview with John Hodgman. First of all, are you the John Hodgman with mustache? I want to make sure of that. I am the John Hodgman with a mustache, yes. Can you prove that? Can you just rub the, the phone up against the mustache so we know that it's there? Certainly. <laughs> uh, now I need to compliment my mustache. <laughs> well, you, you put great care into it from appearances on TV. No, it just, that what you see on television are the whiskers that I can grow in the shape that they naturally grow. People ask me, John Hodgman, why did you grow that disgusting substash, what some people call a soul patch? And the answer is that I grew it because I could. Every hair that is on my face is developed to its fullest. I cannot grow anything resembling a beard, sideburns, or connecting burns between uh, that would allow me to grow a Van Dyke, for example. All I can do is this mustache and this soul patch. And I made a pact with my face that I was going to grow out everything I could about a year ago. And that is what has happened. And now I am afraid to cut it off. Because? I'm afraid that I will be attractive to people. Attractive? No, I mean, once you put the investment into into a mustache or a beard or whatever, it, it becomes, you know, the stashed man's burden. Uh-huh. You don't want to get rid of it because it was a large investment. And not just an investment in time to grow the mustache, but also, you know, you had to endure a lot of skepticism um, from your loved ones about what you were doing, a lot of ugly period where it is just beginning to grow in and it looks like you are just not taking care of yourself, and a lot of outright revulsion from people around you who do not like where you're going in your life. Well, you know, I had a completely different relationship to it when I asked, uh, because I think it gives you authority, and I wanted to talk to the John Hodgman with a, a mustache because I want to talk to the man who can be relied on. Well, then I should shave it off immediately. 
the reality is no one should ever have to rely upon facial hair for authority. Authority, much like expertise, comes from within. You get it when you grant it to yourself. Well, John, in your case, it does seem to benefit from some of the trappings. Uh, I think the wood-paneled rooms that I see you speaking from, the books behind you, the mustache. Uh, Are my house? What is going on here? Do you have surveillance equipment in my home? I have had a man on you for years. You haven't noticed? No, no. No one is following me. I'm sorry, John. Very- very few people are walking anywhere near me in real life. It must be what your life is like. No one cares. Oh, thank you, John. You, you nailed it. You did. Well, I just am trying to explain that, you know, the life of a famous minor television personality is similar to the life of a B-movie star or, or, a, or a not very well-known athlete. It's m- sort of like, oh, is that that? I don't know who he was. Who was oh, well, he's gone now. Well, there you go. That's about the most recognition that I get on the street. Seriously. I, I think, um, you know, looking through your activities on the web, your uh, a calendar of appearances, flipping on the TV, Hodgemania is epidemic. I'm in a lot of places a little bit. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, now, I think it was different when I was the personal computer in the Apple ads because those were seen by great, great numbers of people with frequency. And so that was a period of time when people would see me on the street and be very excited and ask me to print out their documents for them because they thought I was a personal computer. But they didn't know my name necessarily, or a a subset of them did, but it was a small and nerdy subset. And then there are people who watch The Daily Show, and then there are some people who know my books, the areas of my expertise, more information than you require, and now that is all. My books of fake trivia and complete world knowledge. But those, you know, those those tend to be retiring types. Those are the types who probably wouldn't talk to me uh, anyway, you know, or who may not be leaving their home because they are busy on the Internet talking to each other there. Did you catch the news that Encyclopedia Britannica is discontinuing its print edition? Yes, I did catch that news. Uh, Do you think that has anything to do with you having released the final volume of your trilogy of world knowledge? Uh, Do I think that I forced them to shut down their print book operation? It is true that my books contain complete world knowledge in a much handier package, only about a thousand pages when you count all three of them together. And it covers such things as the nine presidents who had hooks for hands, the 700 ancient and unspeakable gods, the end of the world, wine, wealth, sports, how boats work, how magic tricks work, and uh, and now um, uh, information also on falconry. But uh, I, I, I don't think that I have quite that influence on the Britannica. It is also true that uh, that my books, unlike the Britannica, do not exist in an electronic edition at all. It is only in a print edition, and if the world does not end in 2012 like the Mayans predict it will, I might try to take away the Britannica's business model and start selling them door-to-door and give those salespeople uh, a new job. <laughs> Did you have uh, a Britannica when you were growing up? I think I had a book, a book of knowledge, I think, was the, the encyclopedia that I had growing up. That's all? Uh, yeah, I think it was called Book of Knowledge. It was a, comp- it was a competitor. But, but a single book as opposed to 20-plus volumes. No, no, no. no it, was a, it was a multi-volume encyclopedia called The Book of Knowledge. Definitely an off-brand, though. Well, look, I didn't come on your radio show to have my parents insulted. <laughs> well, I, I did want to get to, to the young John Hodgman and, and what you were like before you became the minor television celebrity. 
you wanted to be a creative writer. Is that was that your dream? Yes. You know, I was a very pretentious youth, and so I dressed like Doctor Who and listened to public radio and pretended to read The New Yorker back before they had bylines. And I had a fantasy that I was going to become a writer of very earnest and sincere short stories. But I also had a, a pragmatic streak, because I knew that uh, there wasn't much of a market for earnest and sincere short stories outside of uh, MFA programs. And so when I came to New York, I took a job in publishing so that I could be near writers and tell them what to do without feeling a whole lot of pressure to do it myself. <laughs> Prior to becoming that literary agent, uh, you went off to Yale in lit studies? Uh, yes, I went to Yale University, which is a, a, an accredited school in southern Connecticut, and studied. Uh, I majored in uh, literary theory because literature was too practical. And Yale's famous for that. It was and is one of the most famous places for crazy abstract literary theory with lots of French terms in it. And I enjoyed it very much. Did you study with any of the leading lights then um, who were at Yale? Harold Bloom or Paul DeMann or... Paul DeMann was deceased by the time I got there. I did study with Harold Bloom, but Harold Bloom had very little to do with Paul DeMann. Harold Bloom was much more of a, a sentimentalist about literature. He was not a... He was not an arch-French critic. He was uh, somebody who really, uh, really believed that uh, that the text was created by genius. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Literary criticism of the time when I was studying then in the early 1990s, and the profound thing that changed a lot of the way I think about books and culture is that follow the term, the author is dead, right? And the, right. The, the work of literature or whatever piece of culture that you're looking at you, you, you could look at it through the lens of an accumulation of the author's historical biases and colonial racism, et cetera, et cetera, which was never my cup of tea. More, I felt like it was sort of a, an archaeological dig that you had to pull through and make sense of yourself rather than fall to the sort of um, narcissistic trick of, of believing that, uh, that the author was trying to com uh, convey a specific message and that that message was the right message. In other words, the text might be providing a message that the author, him or herself, didn't even realize he or she was writing. And that, and that made criticism a creative work. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, I had the perception that it was the university critic who had replaced the author in stature during some, that time. Yeah, certainly, certainly that was the, the, the feeling of the rock star yeah. young literary critics that I was <laughs> studying with. But for me, it was just an interesting way of, of getting past what I do think is something of a if not a delusion, then something that I think holds people back when discussing culture of any kind, which is what is the artist trying to say? Um, it, doesn't ma it doesn't matter. The work speaks for itself and in different languages to different people, and it gives you, the reader, much more of, a, of an active role in, in figuring out what a movie is doing to you or what a book is doing to you. And, uh, and I find that to be empowering and fun and interesting and creative and a, and a nice way to engage in culture. And Bloom, you know, believed that Shakespeare was a genius and that works come from places of genius that are sort of inimitable and certainly did not have a lot of affection, does not have a lot of affection for the idea that the author is, is dead or that the author is meaningless. To him, the author is very meaningful. And I also have a lot of respect as I've grown older for that point of view as well, because there is such a thing as genius in the world, and uh, stories don't write themselves. You know, complicated stories and complicated pieces of culture emerge 
from someone who sees things in a different way. It doesn't mean that we should necessarily trust what they are trying to say. If they're good artists, they're not trying to say anything. They're just expressing something in the most interesting way possible. But I did study with Harold Bloom, and it was terrifying. (laughs) If that's the short answer. (laughs) Yeah, and let me say, I was not trying to put Harold Bloom in the deconstructionist camp with people like the late Paul DeMann. Uh, no, I should I should hope not, because no, no. they would fight like cats in a bag. There was a deconstructionist camp at Yale, you know. There was a little shanty town of deconstructionists <laughs> in the middle of old campus. <laughs> I did study with Harold Bloom, and he was, he, was an, he was a remarkable influence on my life. I couldn't understand half of what he was saying most of the time. And any time I or anyone else spoke, he would say in the most beautiful way, Oh, my goodness, my dear, you're terribly wrong. <laughs> he was the first person that I, could, that I ever heard Telling you know when when someone would express an opinion, right? Not a factual statement, but would express, I I the way I interpret this work is X Y and Z, and 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 he was the first person I ever heard hear someone else express an opinion and tell them that their opinion was simply wrong. It was an incredible moment uh, and and liberating moment, and I really feel like he had this lilting way of speaking and this incredible authority. And he would tell people in all calmness that their opinions were wrong and incorrect and their interpretations were wrong. And it basically created a, a, an early version of, you know, that's where I learned comedic timing, basically, was from Harold Bloom. You know, hilarious. I was going to ask, I mean, when you go on The Daily Show and say, John, 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 to John Stewart. That's totally Harold Bloom. <laughs> that casual dismissiveness is directly from Harold Bloom. Now, I, I don't mean to suggest that Harold Bloom is a deranged sort of lunatic authority. He has real gravity and real authority that he's earned through hard work. But my uh, character, the resident expert and, and, the, and the expert who writes these books, and now the deranged millionaire, is a person of deranged authority who, who, who has invented a world in his own mind and is dismissive of those who do not have the intelligence to see it. You know, I was thinking that might have been a character you cultivated from a young age, but you're saying, uh, at least in part, um, you drew on your college experience heavily. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that sort of gracious condescension uh, and, 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 and affectionate uh, dismissal uh, was something I learned from Bloom. And then I think a big part of what formed my, my sense of humor also from Yale was, was reading Borges and the weird sort of... Uh, gamesmanship of his little stories, but then also Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and Monty Python and Bill Cosby, you know, lots and lots of uh, comedy that I loved to listen to and enjoyed very much. And it all kind of found its its um, its nexus in a thing that I wrote for the first issue of McSweeney's, where a, a friend of mine had written me an email, and I'd never really received an email in a million years. I mean, I had two email addresses in my book in the mid-90s, and I didn't correspond with those people very often, but a friend of mine from Seattle sent me an email, and for no other reason that I could, I mean, for no reason, I, I wrote him back a deranged letter and, and and acted as though I were a crazy person. And specifically, I was acting an imitation of a piece that Lewis Latham had written in Harper's, in which he gave his nephew advice <laughs> break into publishing, and it was so stuffy and condescending, and for for no reason that, uh, and, uh, and in a way that I think thoroughly confused my friend Josh, who had just written to say how how 
to ask how I was doing, I wrote him a long letter pretending that he was my young younger cousin, which is not true, and that I was I was giving him advice on how to break into book publishing from the point of view of a high-powered media insider and, and professional literary agent, which is not what I was at the time. I was a, a, a low-level, I may even have been a receptionist literary agency or maybe an assistant. And gradually over time, the, the letter, which just went on and on and on, got even crazier and started su- suggesting that if he really wants to be a writer, he has to develop a inner voice, and an inner voice is a little man who lives inside your head, and I could sell him such a little man if he would come to New York, but if he did, he can't come over to the place where I'm living because I'm sleeping in a bathtub somewhere. And just gradually it became revealed that I was that I was insane. And this was something that I wrote to Josh, and then eventually Dave Eggers from McSweeney's gave out a call for, for letters to include in the letters column of the first issue of McSweeney's, and I sent it in, and he published it, and it became this voice of deranged and sort of tragic, tragically unwound authority that, that evolved into um, a, a, an advice column that I wrote for McSweeney's after I left literary agenting. The advice column was called Ask a Former Professional Literary Agent. And then the, I developed a, a comedic voice um, uh, out of that that would lead directly to the areas of my expertise, the idea of this this bizarre... Uh, as I say, deranged authority on everything, telling how to live and what to do. This is your first book uh, of world knowledge, The Areas of My Expertise, which is the one in which you revealed how many presidents had hooks. I think that was the volume. Yes, it was. It was. The number is nine. Well, John, I mean, since this this conversation has taken a a serious and reflective turn... Well, what did you expect from me? I'm not a clown. Not a comedian? No, no. No, I no. I'm, believe me, I'm not complaining. Uh, but I think I'll, I'll stay on that note. Sounds a, a little like you're complaining. <laughs> it's the phone connection. If you were here with me, you'd see okay. that I'm wreathed in smiles and quite enjoying the experience. But I, I think I'll continue being reflective then. So, you, you know, your character is this fake authority, and people love your character or your various versions of the character in an era when, of course, there are no authorities left. Right? I mean, there are no. Right mustached men in uh, wood-paneled studies telling us how it is. No, I mean, I think, I think we're now at a place where, there, where the, there are those people, but everyone else is also an authority. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. When it comes to information, we accept what is given to us from any source, so long as we want to believe it, right? Right. And so, so there is no true authority anymore. There, There is no Encyclopedia Britannica, um, which everyone agrees lays claim to the truth and nothing but. If we want to believe a crazy conspiracy theory, there is someone on the internet who will tell you that conspiracy theory, and you will feel uh, happy. You know, you, the, the cycle will be complete, or the circuit of, of knowledge will be complete. And now, not even on the internet. I mean, crazy conspiracy theories and half-truths and and innuendo are being passed um, like debased coin all the time on major network and, and cable news networks. And what makes those people an authority? Um, a chiron at the bottom of the screen saying, expert in birth <laughs> certificates. <laughs> expert in Obama is a Muslim terrorist. You know, like crazy self-appointed experts uh, are, are um, uh, you know, not even a dime a dozen anymore, a half penny a dozen. 
<laughs> and into that milieu comes the John Hodgman character. Well, right. I mean, you know, an authority is conveyed the moment you get on television or the moment you speak on radio or the moment you, and nowadays, the moment you, you know, have a Twitter account. And uh, and to be able to, to get out there like, uh, you know, a deranged Harold Bloom and start telling people they're wrong, and the truth is that the Internet is a series of tubes, that's, uh, that's a fun fun place to be. By the way, I, I think, uh, what was the, the name of the... Um the senator who said the Internet's a series of tubes, that was Stevens, right? It was Ted Stevens, the, the late Ted Stevens. And, you know, I think he was badly misunderstood. I've parsed that famous statement and realized that he was making sense. Well, I, he was talking about that the, 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 the pipeline of the Internet could get jammed up with, with pornography and trash and garbage. Exactly. He was talking about and, and bandwidth. He was acting as though people didn't want pornography and trash and garbage, and that's where he was wrong. <laughs> it's true, but when he said tubes, he really meant pipes, which is the standard metaphor for uh, limited bandwidth uh, network, and that's the point he was trying to make, and, and people thought he literally meant something like vacuum tubes or something like that, and, and right. mocked the poor man, and then he died. Well, he was, you're, you're, you're correct in the sense that he was, he was uh, inadvertently right in that he was, on the one hand, he was referring to the term pipeline or, you know, bandwidth pipe, which is a real term that, that technical people use. He also was inadvertently referring to the series of pneumatic tubes that Eisenhower connected houses <laughs> with, where, which was the primitive Internet, you know. Uh, but I think, I think the important point is that he was inadvertently right. I think that it is clear on its face that whatever, uh, whatever kind of correctness, and I don't mean to speak ill of the dead, but whatever correctness Ted Stevens had uh, coming out of his mouth when he made that statement was accidental, that he did not know what he was talking about, or had a vague sense based on what a lobbyist from the anti-net neutrality uh, lobby uh, had told him. All right, so so much for my attempt to redeem Ted Stevens on his Internet knowledge. Uh, I, as I say, I'm, I'm sorry for his family, but that doesn't m mean he wasn't stupid that one time. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, we're talking about authority, um, and I, I thought as long as we're getting into serious topics like that, and, and it's very interesting to discover that, you know, your character actually does owe a debt to, to that, that literary theory that you spent so much time learning, you know? Yeah, uh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> now people are going to flock to my shows. <laughs> literary theory, comedy. <laughs> well, people love the sort of mock academic style that you... Dispense. Come here to the famous literary theory and mustache comedy <laughs> well, of John Hodgman, Yale 93. That's, uh, that's how you break through to the big time. <laughs> well, see, you are an unlikely celebrity. I mean, I look at you and I think, wow, yeah. you, you know, I never would have um, expected this to happen. Thank you. Thank you for commenting on my physical appearance. <laughs> no, no, I'm not thinking that. It wasn't about that, John. I look at you Where's and that I coming wonder, from? how could you be on television? <laughs> Don't worry, I, I have asked myself the same question over and over again. Well, I just think there was a, there was a slot waiting for you. There was a need, you know? Uh, the market had a gap in it, and you found it. It had a, a pear-shaped gap in it. Tweety <laughs> pear-shaped gap to be filled by me, John Hodgman. I suppose it's possible. I can't explain how it happened, and, and, and uh, all I can say is that I, I'm lucky and grateful that I get to have fun with some of the most talented comedy people around. You do. I mean, uh, you you are everywhere that I look, uh, mingling with, you know, a lot of the funniest people around these days. You are, among other things, a, a, a cast member of um, Bored to Death, written by Jonathan Ames, who's um, a friend of this show. 
I haven't talked to Jonathan since the since the show debuted, but uh, it seems to be a big success. And well, no, are you aware that show has been canceled? Oh my goodness, no, really? I hate to break it to you, ah. but that show is canceled, and very tragically, because it was in many ways a great success. I mean, it was such. Uh, Jonathan is a friend of mine as well. We're talking about the real Jonathan Ames. Who wrote and created and 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 ran that the show Bored to Death about the fictional uh, the fictional writer slash detective Jonathan Ames played by Jason Schwartzman and you know Jason had been a hero of mine and so for Jonathan to ask me you know his friend from the old times to come be a recurring villain on that show as the as the jealous and bitter Lewis Green um, I of course said yes because I would have the opportunity to watch what was clearly emerging as one of my favorite TV shows from the inside, in particular to watch the, the trio of Ted Danson and Zach Galifianakis and Jason work together. It was such an unusual thing because, you know, there are lots of comedic double acts, but what you had here were, were a, a, an amazing comedic duo in Jason and Zach, an amazing comedic duo in, in Jason and Ted, and an amazing comedic duo in Zach and Ted, and then they all worked together so beautifully. And so just for the purpose of the history of comedy, I'm sorry that it did not go on, among many other reasons that I'm sorry it did not go on. But it did not go on, and uh, unfortunately it was canceled uh, a couple months ago. You know, I had no idea. It seems to have gotten nothing but, you know, good buzz out there. Um, As you say, it had an incredible cast that worked incredibly well together. And it really, having known Jonathan for a while, it really seemed to be the perfect uh, vehicle for a lot of his hobby horses. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> absolutely so. You should give him a call, and he might talk to you a little bit between sobs about uh, about. Yeah. Oh no, I'm I'm dreading it because okay, I you... know that I know that you people in the Bay Area get your news a little late. <laughs> get it by stagecoach. Oh god, busy having coffee and feeling great about yourselves. Well, well, HBO didn't make a big thing of that. I mean, they didn't say canceled, you know, everywhere. Um, so I had no idea. People presume that because they love a thing very passionately, that everyone else does too. And people presume that because they love a thing very passionately and they like it, that it's doing fine. And they don't see it coming when something is canceled or or put on hiatus or disappears, because a lot of the most passionate enjoyers of culture that is still being made by movie companies and TV companies and, and big media companies, a lot of the most passionate enjoyers of those pieces of culture um, don't kind of bother to really support them with their viewing. Do you know what I mean? Your Hulu watching and your Netflix watching don't factor in, and I think that's wrong, but it is the case now. And certainly your torrenting doesn't factor in. And if you really want to support a thing that you love, you've got to stop arguing with me on the Internet about how you really prefer to watch it a certain way and start engaging with the piece of culture in the way that it makes money for good or for ill. If you love a thing and you want to support it, you owe it to yourself to find out how does it make money and how can I help it make money. Well, that, that was the real John Hodgman talking there. Oh, and it goes for radio as well. It certainly goes for public radio. Oh, don't get me started, dude. Is it place drive season right now? Yes, it is. So that, that's the thing. It's like you can have a lot of enthusiasm for a thing, but it's not the same as support. Support is something that uh, you don't have to do, but if you love a thing, you ought to do it every now and then. And the way that public radio makes money is to ask you for money and you give it. And no one is you know, putting a, 
crossbow to your head saying you have to do it, but don't think that loving a thing is the same as supporting it. Hey, you know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, John Hodgman makes a very good point there, that uh, public radio depends on more than love, though we value the love. We need money in the bank, and uh, you can add some money to our bank account by going to our website, KUSP.org, and having yourself a KUSP.orgasm while I play a song by John Hodgman's old friend and Yale buddy, Jonathan Colton. Go ahead, do it, come back, listen to the interview. And now back to today's interview with John Hodgman. We are talking not too long after the um, scandalous, shocking uh, revelation that, that This American Life episode back in January that included the long um, excerpt from a stage performance by Mike Daisy about his discovery of terrible working conditions in a Chinese factory making Apple devices. Turns out to have been untrue, and, and This American Life uh, then turned around and did an entire show retracting mm-hmm. the story. I noticed that you, I think it was in your Twitter, actually quoted uh, a line from Ira Glass who who spoke directly to Mike Daisy, the performer who had fibbed and fabricated with uh, Mike Daisy defending, to some extent, artistic license. Um, Ira Glass saying, I know, but I feel like I have a normal worldview. The normal worldview is somebody stands on stage and says, this happened to me. I think it happened to them, unless it's clearly labeled as here's a work of fiction. You, you quoted that. What, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, I quoted it, and I, and I quoted them both, and I quoted them both without comment. I thought it was a really interesting exchange. I quoted them both without comment to some degree because I know them both. I've known Mike for years, and I've known Ira for, uh, for years, and uh, almost the exact same amount of time. And I have tremendous respect um, for them both. I, I did a variety show here in New York years ago, and I invited Mike to tell stories there because he's an amazing monologist and storyteller. Um, and, you know, the respect that I have for Ira should be apparent on its face. He's just an, he's an incredible broadcaster and uh, an incredible truth teller. And it was a disturbing thing uh, to learn um, uh, about when I was uh, when I learned about it on Friday, and I gave it a lot of thought over the weekend, because it's not only uh, the issue of, you know, what does it mean with regard to the truth of what's happening in, in factories in China, and not just with Apple, but with almost every electronic product and any product that you touch, you know, in the United States, and what does that mean? But also, what does it mean uh, about 
you know, the person that I know, Mike Daisy, who clearly is, was not telling the full truth, not just to his audiences, but also to my other friend, Ira Glass. And, uh, and so uh, I do believe in artistic license, you know? Mm-hmm. I do believe in poetic license. I do believe that with proper labeling, there, there would have been nothing wrong with what Mike did, and it's, it's done in personal essay and memoir and, and I, I guess, a kind of world of nonfiction journalism or nonfiction semi-fictionalized journalism. And this is where it all starts to break down for me, because it's like I know that it happens with proper labeling. I probably wouldn't have a problem with it. But um, if, if you are out there, I, at the end of the day, I believe, even as someone who studied literary theory at Yale, you have to be able to say things simply. And Ira put it very simply. If you say or clearly imply that you saw a thing happening, unless you say otherwise, I have to presume you're telling the truth or else you're a liar. Or unless it's clearly a satire, as in a John Hodgman performance. All of my books are prefaced purposefully <laughs> in the introduction. I'm trained as a, as a journalist, and I'm trained as a person writing academic papers. You, you, you know, you got to cite your sources. And so even though it almost should have gone without saying, in the opening pages of my first book, I say, this is all lies. Just so you know, just to be clear what's going on here. All of these things are lies. And sometimes, you know, truth is stranger than fiction, but nothing is as strange as a lie. Nothing is as disturbing and weird as a, as a, as a outright bald-faced, to-your-face lie. And that's really how I felt listening, unfortunately, to my two friends talk, because, yeah, you can... You can wrap a lot of language around falsehood, and it becomes fiction, right? But if you're not calling a thing fiction, and it's not true, what is it? Mm. You know, like, I don't know, I don't know what else you could possibly call it, you know? And, and to me, it was sad to know that if Mike's piece had simply said in the program some events, all, all of the things described herein are real and documented. Some events are composited from my own experience and experiences that I read about, right? Even in the program, he wouldn't have had to change what he said on stage. He would have been covered if he had just said some of this is not true in the strictest sense of the word. And then allow our poetic license to run free. But what troubled me and I've expressed, I can say it because I've expressed as much to Mike since then, and I feel terrible for him personally, right? Because I've known him for so long. Mm-hmm. But what troubled me was you could stand by the work as a work of poetic license, right? But when you were asked the name of a, if you, if you had nothing to hide, and you were asked the name of the translator, and you gave a fake name. Yeah, that's hiding something. Mm-hmm. It's a hard one. Mm-hmm. It's a hard one. Well, you know, I think Mike Daisy um, allowed in that uh, conversation or confrontation with Ira Glass that the work was so good. He wanted it to be so good that he 
fell victim or whatever to the temptation to embellish and alter the details. And, and that makes me think we are all, or many of us in this culture, after stories of one kind or another. Telling stories is some deep need we have that seems to bolster our own sense of ourselves. Telling a great story about ourselves, telling a great story that we heard, if we are a performer or a journalist or a writer or you know someone else in in, in the public eye, uh, making that story even better brings even more glory upon us. Of course, and and that's a weird thing. I, I mean, it, that Harold, Harold Bloom would be the first to tell you that our lives are completely mediated by stories that we tell about ourselves to ourselves, that we tell to others, and stories, even in journalism, where every fact is verified and checked, are are uh, subjective to the, the, the shading and the word choice and the ordering of events that you, that you say. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. But I would say this, you know, the, the fiction is a story, and what makes lies stranger than fiction and stranger than truth is, and harder is that they're a betrayal. Uh, when you say something that is not true in an effort to deceive a person into thinking that it's true, passive or active, and when that... And when you lie that way, you are betraying a trust. I don't disagree. I, all, I, all I want to point out is that this relentless drive to tell better stories, I think, is the origin of a lot of lying. Most of the time, or much of the time, it's harmless lying. You know, who cares if my story about breaking my leg when I was four is a little exaggerated, you know? Uh, but the, the, the bigger the stakes are, the more people involved in the story the more likely the lie is to harm someone and and to be caught out. And when you talk about large factories in China, the truth will out, you know? Well, I mean, it's the context. Like, you know, Mike, Mike told a story at, at the variety show that I used to host that was a story of his growing up in far northern Maine, and it was hilarious and funny and great. And if someone had said, you know, not every, like the, not every detail of that story is true, I would have like, who cares? Exactly, yeah. You know, of course not. Yeah. Of course, that's what that's what politic license allows. When you're talking about verifiable facts in a clearly newsworthy context, mm-hmm. you know that that's a context that makes a difference. You know, and I, I think Mike has made the argument that the context of doing the show in a theater uh, as rhetoric is different from doing the show on This American Life with the clear expectation that it's real journalism, right? Okay, there is a different context there, but even so, there's an overriding context, which is you're talking about verifiable facts that are clearly newsworthy. Right. Then, then I think the standard is a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking about it a lot with David Reese as we, we drove from State College, Pennsylvania, where we were performing back home and listening to the listening to the retraction show and so on, and we are thinking about it in terms of comedy. Like, is it wrong to lie on stage in in comedy and i think the answer is uh you know when you're telling personal stories and anecdotes and the answer is uh, no it's not particularly wrong because there are very few stakes that affect anyone but you exactly and there is an expectation right a reasonable expectation that some of that stuff is going to be exaggerated for comic effect and the reason you know there is such a reasonable expectation is that uh uh comics so often will preface a particular part of their routine by saying, no, this is really true. Exactly, yes. You know what I mean? So (laughs) the contract is implicit, right? And I think what impressed me about what Ira said is, yeah, there are different worldviews, but there is one worldview that I think it is probably safest, whether you call it the normal worldview or not, 
there is one world review that I think that is safest uh, if we're all going to trust and get along with each other to proceed from, which is to presume that the, con- that the contract is you are going to tell me the truth if you say you saw a thing, right? That's a simple way. And, and otherwise, tell me, set the context up differently. When you play your bogus expert, though, or, or write in that persona, have you ever had people who are just extraordinarily gullible mistake what you're saying for a, a statement of fact? Uh, I don't think anyone really believes that any president said hooks for hands, I suppose. <laughs> all right, and that, folks, is where the interview ended all of a sudden because John Hodgman's phone connection cut out. He messaged me a little while later saying, my internet died apparently has some kind of internet-based phone system and uh, perhaps suffered a tube-related malfunction. I'll never know. But I do know I'm very grateful to John Hodgman for taking time out of his busy schedule to join me on the 7th Avenue Project. And uh, in the spirit of truth-telling and fact-checking that informed some of that interview we just heard, I wanted to mention that when I said uh, of Mike Daisy in that This American Life broadcast in January 2012 that it was untrue I really meant to say that uh, many details of it were not true, but there were other details that were true. In fact, the big question about uh, working conditions in those Chinese electronics plants is still very much an open issue and uh, developing day by day in the news media, and I did not mean to suggest that it is all BS. I'm Robert Polly. This has been the 7th Avenue Project, and I'll be back next week. That is no BS. And we are always available online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Man of action, all that matters is the